Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We will be concluding the chapter tonight, going from verse 17 to 25. And just as a reminder, this really, this whole chapter is focused on how we obey the fifth commandment in the household of God. If you weren't with us last week, we talked about how we honor our mothers in the faith and the widows in the church and our own family. In some way, this week is how we honor our fathers in the faith. And I don't mean that by just old men in the church. What I mean is the spiritual authorities in the household of God, which are the elders and the pastors of the church. We're talking about how to honor them. Verses 17 to 25. You know what? I should probably say up front, just so there's no confusion, I'm not preaching this passage or, you know, elders haven't asked me to preach this passage because we feel particularly dishonored in some way. It's not that we are looking for a raise or anything like that. We are, we're preaching this passage simply because it's the next passage in the book. And this is one of the blessings of actually preaching through a book like this. You can deal with these kinds of topics. So I commend you for, in many ways, for how you honor pastors and the elders of the church. And we can learn from Paul how to continue in that and do even more. So that's what I'm hoping tonight. Pray for that in a minute. Let's read the passage first. 1 Timothy 5, starting in verse 17. Let me just remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our Lord. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is such a wonderful gift to your people, because in and through it you reveal the way, the truth, and the life, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, Lord, as we gather once again around your word tonight, we ask that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Amen. Well, about 150 years ago, Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote a wonderful little book for pastors called Lecture to My Students. 
If you've never heard the book or read about it, it's a great little book, and it, it's titled appropriately. It was really a class lecture that he gave to up-and-coming pastors. And in the book where it's just a lot of practical wisdom about preaching and teaching and ministry and a lot of wonderful kind of reminders and even warnings to pastors about the high calling of ministry. Now, in the first chapter, he comes right out of 1 Timothy warning pastors with these words in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, keep a close watch on yourselves and your teaching. And he has a wonderful illustration of a clock that kind of puts this into perspective that I want to share with you. So listen to what he says here. He says, as ministers, your whole pastoral life will be affected by the vigor, the strength of your piety. It is with us and our hearers as it is with the watches and the public clock. Now, we don't really have a public clock here. If you don't know, Spurgeon ministered in London, and there was actually a public clock. It was called the Shepherd Master Clock, very precise clock that all of London essentially set their watch to. If you've ever seen Big Ben, a parliament that's tall tower, that was set to this public clock, and that's what he's referring to here. Then he says, if our watch, our watch be wrong, very few will be misled by it but ourselves. But if the house guards or the Greenwich Observatory should go amiss, that's that public clock, half of London would lose its reckoning. So it is with the minister. He is the parish clock. Many take their time from him. And if he be incorrect, then they all go wrongly, more or less. And he is in a great measure accountable for all the sin which he occasions. Powerful statement. Essentially what Spurgeon is saying is, as goes the pastor and the elders of a church, so goes the church, for good or bad. If his life and teaching is off, it will throw the whole church off, even wreck the church eventually. And haven't we seen this throughout history? We've seen this in so many places, even in recent times. Most of us know the mess that was created with like Acts 29 and Sovereign Grace Ministries and C.G. Mahaney. And we know that most of the churches that we're familiar with don't collapse because oppression and persecution. There are some that do. But most of the churches we're familiar with kind of implode from the inside, don't they? With problems in their leadership, particularly in their pastors. I know some of you have actually been at churches locally when scandals came out and eventually wrecked the church. This is a common problem in our world in so many cases. So the question that I have, and I think it's the question that Paul is really answering here, is how can we protect the church from this mess, these scandals and these problems in leadership? How can we keep good and faithful pastors in the pulpit and in the office and then get rid of the ones that are not, that are unfaithful and that will destroy the church? Now, up front, we need to admit there is no foolproof way of doing this because our Lord is sovereign and he has decided that these things would happen in a church and he's also promised that they are for the church's good to purify the church as hard as they may be for us. But Paul still gives a number of helpful insights and principles in these verses to help us protect the church. Really, what Paul's saying here is how we can honor and protect the leadership in the church. That's what he's getting at. How we can honor and protect 
the elders and pastors of the church. So in doing, protecting the church as well. Now, I want to draw your attention to three areas that Paul talks about here. First, in honoring our pastors, in verses 17 through 18. That was that double honor section that we read earlier. And then second, protecting our elders, and also protecting the church, even from elders at some points. That's a big part of this text as well. And then third, ordaining new elders. So if you want three words to kind of guide you through this text, it's honoring, protecting, ordaining. Those are the three sections we'll walk through here. So first, let's talk about honoring our pastors. Back in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially or namely those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, first thing I want you to notice is Paul is drawing our attention here to a particular kind of elder. He's making a distinction within that office of elder. He says these elders need to rule well, but how? Well, he tells us, right? At the very end of the verse, they labor in preaching and teaching. Now, if you know the different distinctions in those offices, what he's talking about here is a teaching elder. He's talking about a pastor, or what we sometimes see, especially in a lot of the reform circles, they say a minister of the word. Those really have the kind of prophetic role in the church, and their job is teaching and preaching to the church and administering sacraments. So at Sovereign Grace, those would be people like myself, or like Jason, or like Chad. But those aren't the only kinds of elders we have. We also have ruling elders. Now, those are not what Paul has in mind here, but I need to make sure this is clear. The ruling elders have more of a judicial role or a kingly role in a church, if you want to think of it that way. Their job is to make judgments and decisions that direct and protect the church. That doesn't mean they make the judgments based on their own wisdom. They're still grounded in the word, and the word is their only authority. But they still make those kinds of judgments. And you know, in our church, we have two of those right now, John Bryant and Curtis Skaggs as well. Now, I want to make this really clear. This does not mean that those roles never overlap. It doesn't mean that they never cross there. It doesn't mean that the ruling elders have to be just these businessmen, right, that make decisions and then never teach. That's not the case. It also doesn't mean, on the other hand, that the teaching elders are just these kind of you know, nerdy academic folks that just have to be locked up in their office all day and never make any decisions with money or ruling. That's not the point here. There's overlap all the way through this. And Paul's focus here in this verse is on the teaching elder, the pastor, the minister of the church. And what does Paul say? If this teaching elder, this pastor rules well, he is worthy of a double honor. What does that mean? Well, that doesn't mean up front that double the support, double the honor. We just talked about honoring widows, didn't we, last week? He's not saying, okay, you gave widows support, so now double it for this elder. That's not the idea here. The picture here with this double honor would be better to understand it as kind of a twofold honor or maybe two kinds of honor if you want to think about it that way. So the first kind of honor is the honor that we're probably used to, honor in terms of respect and dignity, that you hear someone's words and you obey them, like you would honor a parent in that way. You hold them in high regard. And Paul does talk about this honor. He mentions it a little bit with the widows, but he talks about it especially in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. He says, brothers, respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. 
esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And in Hebrews 13, 17, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. So this is that respect and dignity type of honor. But the second kind of honor here, the, the other side of that double honor, would be honor in terms of what we talked about more last week, which is financial support. That's a big part of what we talked about in last week with the widows. We're supporting them financially. And remember, that comes right out of even Jesus' words in Matthew 15, where he says, as your parents age, you are to honor them by paying for them and caring for them, financially supporting them in their old age. Now, Paul is going to back that up now with the next few verses and explain why this double honor is honor normally, but it's also honor in terms of financial support. Look at verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. Now, I would imagine that probably sounds really strange. We're talking about pastors and honor, and then all of a sudden oxen are, are in the picture here. What in the world is going on? And so Paul is actually using an illustration that is foreign to us, but very familiar to his readers. In the ancient world, this is what happened on what's, what's called the threshing floor, if you know anything about that. And really, Paul is actually quoting from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, which is a case law on how Israel was to kind of work on this threshing floor. And if you're not, not familiar with it, it's where an oxen would be on this kind of pen with a stone floor, and they would bring in the husks of wheat and they would kind of lead the oxen around to crush those. And so the wheat would come out and the chaff would just kind of blow away. That's what would happen on the threshing floor. And see, here's the issue. A lot of pagan nations would muzzle their ox out of greed. We don't want our animal eating food that's meant for us. And so God says, no, no, no. My people don't have to be greedy like that. Because I will provide for them. So take the muzzle off. Let the animal enjoy the fruit of their labor. That's part of the point of that case law. And so what Paul is getting at by quoting this here is he's saying, look, if God is concerned for the oxen that provide for your physical needs, don't you think he's concerned about providing for the pastor that is also providing for your spiritual needs? So he's saying, look, don't be greedy. Trust the Lord. God will provide enough for you and your pastor. God will provide enough so you can do that. Now, Paul actually gives more support of this, and you can read this later in 1 Corinthians 9. He quotes the same exact verse, the same case law from Deuteronomy, and then he follows it up with this. He says, the Lord, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should also get their living by the gospel. And that's Paul Wayne saying, look, I'm just the messenger here. Right? The Lord is the one that commanded this. I'm not trying to be selfish. And just in case we're in any doubt, look at the way he finishes verse 18. He says, first, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then he says, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, that's not from Deuteronomy. That's actually a quote, surprisingly, from Luke 10. It's being called scripture here. These are the words of Christ. If you don't remember this story, this is when Christ sent out the 72 disciples. And he said, go and do ministry in the local area. Go and preach the gospel and care for the people. And when you go out, stay in the homes. When you go into their homes, eat the food that they will give you. Why? For the laborer 
deserves his wages. See, Jesus was making the point that they're doing the work. They should be financially supported for their work. And now Paul is bringing that in and saying, that's part of the honor here. So I hope you can all see what Paul is getting at with this double honor. He's saying, telling the church to respect and support your pastors, those who rule well. That is rule with teaching and preaching. Those that do that well, they deserve honor and an honorarium. That's the idea there. That's the double honor he's getting at. Now, I ask you, church, how are you doing at this? And again, I want to back up and say, I think our church is very faithful in caring for our pastors financially, incredibly faithful, especially talking to a lot of pastors that are barely making it by at times. You treat us so well. and We don't have needs in most cases. But I really want to press into one area. How are you honoring your pastors in terms of respect and obedience? Kids, many of you received the sign this morning. How well are you listening to your pastors as we open the word each and every Sunday? Are you trusting in the Christ that we're pointing to week after week? Are you listening to these words that God has given us and trusting and obeying him? Adults, are you submitting to your pastor's instruction and correction with due obedience patiently bearing with our weakness and infirmities since it pleases God to govern the church by our hands. If you've never heard that before, that's Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 104. About what it looks like to submit to the authorities in your family and especially in the church. Does this describe you? Are you the people that hear God's word and trust and obey? Because that's the kind of honor that Paul is calling us to here in this passage. But that's not all Paul is calling us to. He's talking to us to say, honor your pastors. But then he says, I want you to also protect your elders and the church as well. Now, how do we do that? Well, verse 19, we see that we protect the elders by kind of fending bad accusations off. Look at verse 19 with me. Do not admit a charge against any elder. Now, pay attention there. We're not talking about the teaching elder anymore or the ruling elder anymore. Now we're just talking about all the elders. Don't admit a charge against any elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Paul here is, again, he's building from the Old Testament here, bringing these principles out that were in the Old Testament law. And this was Israel's practice really to kind of sort out credible accusations, was to really guard the church against false and malicious accusations that would take down the leaders this is coming right out of deuteronomy 19 verse 15 let me read that verse a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established and we know that language even in the new testament as well don't we because jesus uses the same language when he's talking about church discipline. Before we're going to excommunicate somebody and turn them over to Satan, which is a scary process, we want to make sure that these accusations are true, which is why we need two or three witnesses. Now, why is Paul bringing this up here? What's the need to bring this up? Well, I think it's likely that a lot of these false accusations were really a tool of these false teachers in Ephesus. 
They hated what Timothy and what Paul was really telling Timothy to do. As they were bringing their false doctrine into light, their goal was to take out the leaders in the church. They did not want their teaching to be exposed for what it was. And so they fought back by trying to destroy the church at the leadership level. Now, sadly, this is not new, is it? This is as old as time. We can go all the way back to Moses. Moses was falsely accused, you remember, in the desert of abusing his authority in Numbers 16 with the whole rebellion of Korah that ended really badly with the earth like swallowing people? We even talked about Martin Luther, John Calvin. They were falsely accused and slandered all the time. Both of them were actually exiled from their church at one point and their homes. That's how bad it got. Or even think of missionaries like Hudson Taylor, missionary from China. He was actually falsely accused at one point of stealing money and even inappropriate relationships with women. And they pulled him off the field and tried him, and he was found innocent, but it nearly destroyed the China Inland Mission. It nearly wrecked all of his work in China. 30 missionaries resigned because of it, even though they were unfounded. So sadly, elders... And leaders in the church, this is just a, this is a common part of ministry in this world. We have targets on our back. Satan is targeting us. That doesn't mean we need to lose hope. It doesn't mean we have to worry and stress because our Lord was slandered. Our Lord was falsely accused. But he obeyed perfectly. He never gave in to sin. Never slandered in return. He walked faithfully in our place and died for our sins and freed us from Satan's sin and death, which really is our greatest enemy. No matter what people throw at us, that's what we should fear the most. And we remember even the words of Jesus when slandering and false accusations come our way. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Now, even though we're supposed to protect elders, that doesn't mean that the elders are untouchable. It doesn't mean that they're never going to be confronted for any kind of sin, because sometimes the accusations are true, right? And so what do we do in those moments? Well, in those moments, the church needs to be protected from unfaithful, unrepentant elders. And that's what Paul deals with next. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, he says, As for those who persist in sin, those are the elders that have been unfaithful, that are not repenting or recounting their teaching or their sin in their life. Paul says, what do you do? You rebuke them. Not just rebuke them. In the presence of all. In front of the church. I don't know if that sounds harsh to anybody. Are you really going to? publicly crucify him like that wouldn't it be so much quicker and easier to deal with it quietly push it to the side I mean you don't want to wreck someone's faith that trusted in that man do you Paul says we can't cover it up the unrepentant sins of leaders can never be covered up why look what Paul says in the 20 so that the rest may stand in fear The reasons that elders, unrepentant elders, need to be publicly rebuked is so that the whole congregation knows that nobody, no one is above God's law. No one is immune to discipline and rebuke. 
And when the church sees that you take sin seriously, at the, even at the elder level, the whole church will fear. Because their sin is taken seriously as well. That's the point. And you need to remember, this is not just all talk from Paul. It's not like he's asking Timothy to do something that he would never do himself. Paul did this to Peter. He confronted Peter. When Peter was in theological error, sin, do you remember what Paul did? We learn about it in Galatians 2. He didn't say, look, oh, Peter, he's the, he is the rock. He's an apostle. He's worthy of double honor. I can't confront him. I just have to make it. No, he says he opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. He rebuked him publicly. And by God's grace, Peter repented and was restored and was faithful. And that is what Paul is calling Timothy to do with these unfaithful elders is to call them to repentance, rebuke them publicly. And then Paul adds this, verse 21. This is the why, really. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. This is Paul saying, Timothy, look, I know it's going to be hard to confront these elders. It's so easy to assume too much and fill in the gaps in your imagination. It's really easy to show partiality as well to men that you loved and you served alongside of. But he's saying, but Timothy, don't forget who you serve. Don't forget who is watching you right now. God is your judge. This is his church. And the, the job of an elder is to protect the church of Christ and to honor the Lord, no matter what it costs us or the people we love. That's what he's called to here. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy to step up and do. Rebuke these elders. So Paul has taught us to honor our pastors and to protect our elders and the church now, lastly, Paul is going to talk about how to protect the elders up front, really, by ordaining good elders, by ordaining godly elders in verse 22 to 25. Look at 22 with me. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now, this is a description by Paul of ordination, of adopting new elders. And this is really Paul helping Timothy to protect against having to remove elders down the way. He's telling Timothy, look, don't be too hasty. Don't rush the ordination. Don't put someone in office too soon. And you can get why this would be a temptation, right? If there's conflict in the church, it can be a real temptation for the leaders to say, I need to get people on my side. I need backup. And I'm going to put people in the office so that I have backup and can help me fight for my cause. Or maybe a really gifted preacher comes along or a really charismatic leaders and the others think, wow, I don't really know this guy well, but the church loves him. He's got to be a big blessing to the church, right? So we'll just, we'll make him an elder really fast. And those situations can blow up in our face because we don't know, we don't vet their character. We don't take our time. We, we lay hands on them too hastily. Or think of our missionaries, I can imagine the temptation of our missionaries one day. When they finally get a church and they want to bring elders in, the temptation will be so strong to, well, we should just make the first people that became Christians elders. right? The first men, they're going to be the elders because they were the ones to take the step of faith. And they want to do that to stabilize the church. 
But in doing so, it may destabilize the church, even destroy the church in the long run. And so Paul is saying, look, you can't make a man an elder too quickly because if he falls into sin, this is what happens. Verse 22, you, Timothy, you, church, will take part in the sins of others. That's a scary statement right there. We put an unqualified man in office, then their sins are on us. It's a big warning for the church to take ordination seriously. It's almost as if Paul is telling Timothy here, look, it's better to not have enough elders, better to not have enough help than to put the wrong man in office and wreck the church. Don't make a foolish decision, Timothy. Don't base your decision on gifting or ability and then overlook character. It will haunt you in the long run. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And I believe even this little kind of weird parenthetical statement at the end of verse 22 and 23 supports that idea. Look at 22 again, the very end. Paul says, keep yourself pure. Don't take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And then he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach and for your frequent ailments. Now look, so many people don't want to use this verse to kind of say, oh, just take a little wine or don't take a lot of wine. That's not really the point. And I have no doubt that Paul is being very pastoral here, caring for his son in the faith, saying, don't drink only water, drink wine, help your stomach, because they probably had terrible water where he was. But I also believe that Paul is reminding Timothy here that purity does not come through things. It's not abstention that is going to make him pure. It's not abstaining from wine that's going to make him pure. Purity only comes in Christ. It only comes by being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Remember, the false teachers were teaching that purity comes through things, through abstention. Don't drink this. Don't eat that. Don't get married. That's how you become pure. Paul says, no, no, Timothy, your purity is only in Christ, not in what you eat or drink. It comes in Christ. And if you're united to him, your purity will show up. It'll show up in your godly character both in you and in the elders you want to put in office. And that's where he goes next. Look at verse 24. The sins of some people are conspicuous. They're obvious. They're easy to see. Going before them to judgment. Now, these are the kind of people that you really know right away, oh, they're disqualified. They should never be an elder. They might be a believer struggling, but you never put them in office because their sins are obvious. But then he says, but the sins of others appear later so there's some that look really good on the outside but if you give it time their sins will come out you'll know they're unqualified if you just give it some time so don't be hasty timothy and then he adds 25 so also good works are conspicuous they're obvious as well even those that are not cannot remain hidden paul is saying here look timothy you can't hide godly character and sin forever can't they will be exposed one day in judgment absolutely but if you give it time they will be exposed in front of you so don't be too hasty don't jump into eldership too quickly with somebody take your time ordaining elders 
Look at their character over the long run. And then trust the Lord. Trust the Lord to expose that character, to expose that fruit, and to give you the wisdom necessary to make the right decision whether they belong in the office or not. Because we remember, at the end of the day, it's not the elders that build the church. It's not the sheep that build the church. Christ said, I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he is a good and faithful shepherd. He is not only a good and faithful shepherd, he's a good and faithful shepherd even when his shepherds fail and his church falls apart. He will always, always restore his church. may not be in the way we like, but he will be a good and faithful shepherd to the end. So let's pray that he would do that here with us at this church. Let's pray. Lord, you are the good and faithful shepherd. You never fail to care for your church, protect your church, and love your church, even when the world assaults us from the outside and even when messes come from the inside, even among our own leadership. Lord, we know you said you would build your church, so we pray, Father, be faithful to build your church through your Son, just as you promised, and give us wisdom as your leaders to select the right men and honor you and honor them as we put them in office. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.